Hello and welcome back to this episode of Talk Evidence, your monthly look at what's happening in the world of EBM. This week we're trying to leave COVID behind because officially the pandemic is over. But what does that actually mean for COVID research? On the other side of the Atlantic, there's been a surprising update on breast cancer screening guidelines where a major producer has proposed reducing the age for screening from 50 to 40. We'll have a look at the detail. And then from conditions and diseases that may affect many to those that affect very few and the attempts to encourage the development of orphan drugs. I'm Helen McDonald, clinical editor on the BMJ and content integrity and publication ethics editor on the journals. And I'm joined as usual by Joe and by Juan. Do you want to say who you are and say hello? Hi, Helen. This is Joe, one of the research editors of the BMJ. Nice to see you. I'm the editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidences Medicine and researcher here at the Heinrich Heine University in Germany. So I think we should start at the top because this is such massive news for everyone, although actually it seemed like quite a small news story when I when I saw it posted or one of you drew my attention to it. I had seen it on Twitter as well. But WHO have declared that the COVID pandemic is over. Um, is that true, Joe? What does it mean? Well, I guess it's true because they say it's true. And <laughs> it is quite interesting in the sense that, you know, the three years that we've been going through this pandemic, in some ways, kind of mirror what we've seen in prior pandemics, like as respiratory viruses, they kind of explode in, into populations, cause a great, great deal of morbidity and mortality. The second wave is usually worse. And then it seems to burn itself out. And so I think that the WHO and other public health agencies have watched what's happened with COVID and feel like we've sort of reached the same point and they've declared the pandemic to be over, which I guess maybe it's driven by pure numbers in terms of the number of infections around the world and whether it's met kind of pandemic proportions, you know, with each sufficient number of countries having a certain number of cases and all of that. But from a practical point of view in the United States, it's actually going to have substantial effects on the way we deliver healthcare because the pandemic enabled the United States government to expand public insurance through the Medicaid program pretty substantially from state to state and to offer different um, you know treatments for COVID and diagnostic tests at no cost to the population. Just for COVID or for other Predominantly like for COVID-related stuff, but also other kind of antiviral treatments. But really, the it's the, the public insurance system that's going to change so much. And also, it, it enabled telemedicine, right, in ways that we had never seen before. But um, many state uh, Medicaid programs are trying to unwind, the essentially identify the individuals who are only eligible because of the pandemic. Some states are going very fast. Notably, Arkansas has tried to unwind very quickly. And there's a lot of concern that people who would still be eligible for Medicaid are going to be kicked off the program. And we're going to suddenly have a lot of people without health insurance, you know, putting them at risk. Uh, so it's going to have pretty, pretty massive implications uh, just because it's happened, happening kind of suddenly. What about for you, Juan, where you are? What, what do you think the effects will be? Well, um, I guess here in Germany, um, I wouldn't dare to elaborate a lot on the health uh, care system here in Germany, but it is a different type of medicine in the U.S., uh, obviously. And this has uh, implications uh, as to how we think the impact of COVID um, 
was in terms of how we think about um, drugs and treatments and tests for people in the sense that I found it fascinating what Joe says because um, why should a certain diagnosis be um, sort of a keyword to get an access to healthcare, right? I mean, is that fair? It raises a lot of equity issues. Um but at the same time, I think it's a it's very interesting the, the, this uh, experiment of changing the the way we provide access to to healthcare because people know about that. People started saying, "Well, I get these vaccines for free. Why shouldn't I get other things for free?" Um, because it also relates to my care, right? Um, I'm not sure if it's going to change that much here in terms of access of care because of the the way that. The German system is uh, is built, and or even in, in my country in Argentina, is probably is going to be similar in terms of delivery of, of care because um, of the social care uh, system that we have for healthcare. Um, but I was thinking a lot about what this announcement meant for uh, research, especially for re ongoing research in terms of. Uh, drugs and treatments, or even understanding of the ongoing um, consequences of the pandemic. For example, what are the long... You mean specifically for COVID rather than exactly. other conditions? Yeah. Um, so if people are not getting tested, uh, and perhaps we don't know the um, effects of repeated infections uh, as and post-COVID conditions, um, and if uh, fewer people are being uh, tested, perhaps it would be very difficult to recruit them into trials for effectiveness of drugs. Um, or perhaps we can only focus on the more severe cases. I mean, there, there are a wide variety of, 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 of potential problems and solutions. But at the same time, given, I, I guess that the funding schemes for a condition that is not an emergency is quite different as well, in the sense that the priorities will be again uh, a, a wider competition with other chronic conditions or acute conditions that affect uh, worldwide population so um, I think the, the what we're going to know about the virus is going to be very affected by this um, by how the pandemic is being perceived perhaps not specifically by this announcement but it sort of signals where we're going to well, we've talked about the benefit and harm of the pandemic all the way through, and it will be interesting to see how this um, balance of benefit and harm continues as, as it abates um, and passes into a different category. This is a first for Talk Evidence. I think we have a recommended reading from our Editor-in-Chief, Cameron Abassi. It's about the winding down of the UK's COVID-19 Genomic Surveillance Network, COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, otherwise known as COG UK. It was a pandemic creation and it was set up and within short weeks, it was delivering evidence to UK decision makers on the variants of uh, COVID that were emerging. And I can see why he recommended it because there is some staggering information in there. So it says within 18 months, 1 million genomic sequences taken from positive community tests around the UK. Um, and that ultimately was about a quarter of all of those that were collected globally or reported to be so. So this organisation was really leading um, part of the global public health initiative um, with a version of it now having been launched by WHO. But within the UK, 
Um, COG UK faces an uncertain future um, because its funding from the UK government is just wrapping up as um, the emphasis and need for funding uh, moves on from COVID uh, to other locations. But the question remains, and what's posted in this piece, is what happens to routine sequencing when one emergency is coming to an end and the threat of the next one is unknown but ever-present? So if you're interested in the answer to that, you can go and read this highly uh, interesting piece of reading, um, which Cameron recommends to you all. So it's interesting, Juan, you mentioned uh, that you were worried about the implications of the pandemic of COVID being declared over and then how that might impact research. And a paper that I I spotted um, in the BMJ coming out, it came out on the 3rd of May, was reporting on the association between SARS-CoV-2 vaccination and healthcare contacts for menstrual disturbance and bleeding in women before and after the menopause, um, a nationwide register-based cohort study. And, and that struck me as exactly the kind of research which may well no longer be funded um, as the pandemic draws to a close. Yeah, I mean, it could be, it depends on which type of, of research, right? There's a, lo a lot of funding that went into the infrastructure or improving the the quality or the architecture of data, for example, in databases and how you can create this big data slash real world uh, research. And um, I guess in that sense, a lot of that infrastructure will still be available to conduct observational studies. But I'm thinking the more, well, the more clinical trial or resource intense um, research that involves recruiting patients, um, recruiting participants, um, putting up questionnaires or, or, or clinical assessments for a study, those, those are going to be much more difficult to carry forward. So one thing I liked about this study was that um, the rationale for the study was very focused in the real world. Um, so they write, this study is set in Sweden, and they write that in November 2022, there were about 8,000 reports of suspected adverse drug reactions regarding menstrual disturbances that had been reported to the Swedish Medicinal Products Agency. So I like the fact that this is grounded in what they were seeing um, reported and that many of those reports had come directly from uh, women um, rather than healthcare providers. So this study included around, well, just under uh, 3 million Swedish women between 12 and 74 who had had various degrees of um, COVID vaccination um, delivered to them and they split it out by product and dosing, whether they're unvaccinated, had had one, two or three doses um, and over time windows since the vaccination. And the main outcome they were measuring was healthcare contact, whether that was admission to a hospital or a visit to an outpatient where they reported menstrual disturbance or bleeding. Um, so it's a coding study, which I think is somewhat limited because this is looking at women who've actually either bothered to go and see a doctor or to seek medical attention because of this having happened to them, or perhaps they were there for something else and then they decided that they would mention it at the same time. So I, my suspicion is that there, there may be a lot of women who experience something like this who may not have gone near 
um, a healthcare facility. But with all that said, um, what they do um, is then report on those findings. And the key messages were that the highest risk for bleeding in women um, was found in people who were postmenopausal and was found after the third dose of the vaccine. So they write that the risk of postmenopausal bleeding suggested a 23 to 33% increase after sort of between 8 and 90 days. And that's with the Pfizer um, or the Moderna uh, vaccines after the third dose. But the association with the Oxford vaccine was less clear. However, for premenopausal women after adjustment, the associations were quite weak. So overall, the authors did not conclude that there was substantial support for a causal association between the vaccine um, and healthcare contacts related to menstrual or bleeding disorders. But as I said, Juan, I, was, I, I feel like I've declared my bias here because I, <laughs> I said that maybe a lot of women weren't going to seek help um, for, these, um, for these disturbances unless they had, had reached really quite a bothersome threshold. What thoughts did you have on the paper? Well, um, I, I guess at least you could be reading it in two ways. I mean, if you look at the, the most serious events, um, at least you're sort of reassured that it's not a huge problem that is going to take you to the hospital. Um, but it is true, as you said, that it, we can't rule uh, we can't rule out that the the smaller events of increased bleeding or so other menstrual alterations are not um, affected by the vaccine. So, um, especially, I think that, um, uh, and and this is of course bringing anecdotal evidence, but that has to do with um, the the discourse in social media and and. And so on. I, I think that uh, a couple of months after vaccination, there was sort of this alert about this uh, alteration. So, and this can have an effect on research in the sense that if if women are warned that they can have alterations, then they might be less persuaded to report it as an adverse event. So this could bias your research to the null. So, um, what we I guess might it could bias it both ways. Couldn't watching it? is that. I guess it could bias the research either way, couldn't it? Because you could either feel, you know, I'm kind of expecting that this might happen and so I'm not going to say anything. Or you might conversely think this has happened to me and I feel that it needs to be written down and validated and um, be put on record that this that this happened. Exactly, exactly. I guess we have to ask the Swedish women, right? What's their attitude? We have to ask the Swedish women. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, this was a registry study, so there's 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 few participants that we can uh, we can refer to in this case. But maybe some Swedish women, if you're listening, you can uh, you can write and tell us what what you think um, on balance. <laughs> Swedish women women would report in this situation. Juan, I think you've had a very beady eye on the news this month because you sent me another announcement to consider for the podcast, which was a um, new recommendation or an updated recommendation about breast screening amongst asymptomatic women um, in the US made by the United States Preventative Task Force. Um, and tell us a bit about it. What attracted you to it? So um, uh, so to put a little bit of a context, um, most screening programs, um, national screening programs, focus on women 50, year, 50 years or older. 
And now there's a new draft from the U.S. Parental Services Task Force services that um, suggests lowering the um, age to start screening to 40. So the previous recommendation was also starting from 50 for the U.S. Parental, but from 40 to 49, it was a more of a conditional recommendation. That means that the uh, women could talk to their healthcare provider and decide for themselves whether it was a good idea or not. Uh, so it had more of a conditional weight into it. But now the recommendation is a single recommendation between the age of 40 to 74, considering uh, a modest benefit, which is the grade B classification within the U.S. Parental Task Force Service. So they have A, B, and C, where A is quite a strong statement, um, going down to C, where things are much more uncertain. Yeah, a, a is, for example, for vaccines, as you know, that there's a large benefit, minimal harms, huge amount of evidence. B is a modest benefit. C is the traders are so-and-so. I means no, no, no real evidence to support it. And uh, D is um, evidence against it, actually, to recommend against it. So um, what I found interesting about this uh, change in the recommendation is that um, what were the grounds for this change? Uh, the grounds were not specifically new evidence, but... Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? That means that there are no new trials signaling what happens okay. in this population from 40 to 49. But there are modeling studies that try to understand what would be the benefit in this age group. And the, um, the, basically, these um, modeling studies highlight that more uh, cases will, of breast cancer, uh, the, of death attributed to breast cancer will be reduced. Uh, let me get, fetch the number, but it's two or three cases per 1,000 women uh, in this age group, I think. And they also, to be... Over what time frame? Um, I think it's lifetime. I should have done my homework with this. But... Um, you know, I'm a pedant, Juan, for the detail. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I guess that I, I, I acknowledge my bias in this because I jumped into the harms because I wanted to know if they modeled the harms as well. <laughs> and I remember that number a little bit more that they modeled that there was going to be a 60% increase in false positive and two additional yeah. overdiagnoses. So, yes, I acknowledge it's not I, a balanced I, communication. Well, Joe's, so Joe's itching to come in here. Well, I think there's, I mean, obviously the, the modeling, because there are not new trials, is kind of what's going to be driving any change in a recommendation at this point. And what they explained is that collaborative modeling data estimated that compared with biennial screening from ages 50 to 74, biennial screening starting at age 40 until 74 would lead to 1.3 additional breast cancer deaths averted per 1,000 women screened over a lifetime for all women. Now, what makes that so particularly interesting is most of the randomized controlled trial data on which the, these estimates are modeled do find that screening, breast cancer screening with mammograms is associated with reduced breast cancer deaths, mm -hmm. but not with overall mortality. And that's very important, right? Well, because it suggests that you're trading one death for another in some respects, mm. right? And so the question becomes, you know, is screening improving quality of life in some other ways? Like, what, what is it doing that's leading to an improvement in women's lives? And the BMJ has 
actively published many other sort of related papers, particularly from the Kew Research Database. It's a, um, mm. There's one paper actually that just came out in the BMJ that was focused on modeling um, essentially the, pro the prognosis of breast cancer when diagnosed. But they also have an ongoing project, this Kew Research team, um, that, that is focused on the incidence of breast cancer. So there is going to continue to be new information. It's, it is kind of a, I think, a challenge. There's still a lot of individualized decision-making that's going to play, play into this. And yeah, I don't know. There, I think there's a lot it's of confusion by dropping It's an interesting decision, though, isn't it? Because it yeah. feels like, as you say, Juan, there's no major new evidence here. This is... This, these breast screening programs are up and running and any new evidence that's feeding in is sort of fine-tuning them, isn't it? And it's kind of interesting to me that this recommendation from the US is expanding this program into a new age category in quite an undifferentiated way in the sense that they appear to be making the offer to all women above that age threshold, whereas in an era where we're wanting to see, or there's an expectation perhaps of personalization and individual care, it seems sort of almost slightly crude to be expanding it on age, but that may be my naivety to the issue. Um, I think that it also, I mean, it all depends on the system and the, the, the system implications of this. If these are going to influence the change in screening programs, the ones that you receive a letter annually, um, or if it's going to affect the the conversations between uh, women and their doctors and uh, in the second case I don't think it's going to be that much effective because the evidence hasn't changed that much but if they start inviting people in their 40s to have a mam mammography we we sort of know what's going to happen we're going to have a lot of false positive and and I just wanted to add another bit that happens between 40 and 49 that has to do with the dense breaths which is also a huge problem with screening at this age that you have a higher um, rate of false positive and technical issues regarding um, breast density screening. So, um, yeah, um, I, I, I would hate to, to, to put a qualifier, but I think that it's at least a little bit uh, problematic from my perspective. Yeah, I'll just add that even in the USPSTF report, they note that this new estimate of screening biennially starting at age 40 is going to result in 1,376 false positive results per 1,000 women, which is on average more than one per woman screened, which is a lot. So how are we going to manage false positive results, the sort of implications and impact on women's psyche, how it's going to change their behavior, the, the scare that results from it? It's not a small thing. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see how they propose to manage the communication of this expansion in, in light of that information to women of that age group. And I am one of them now. So, yeah, we'll see. If I was in the US, I could be being offered this thing. Not, not could be. Um, you would be. And it is pretty hard because although um, I am a 41-year-old woman, uh, so I should be able to imagine myself in this situation. For some reason, I still find it quite hard to. It, it's still quite theoretical in my head. And um, part of me, um, for our listeners who listen to me a lot, know, knows that I'm quite sceptical. Um, and I think my scepticism grows when I look at the information on their site um, online because it's hard to see really what's new. And when you go through all the bump and the information for patients on there, 
well, not for patients, for members of the public. Um, I think my overriding impression is, again, one of my common themes, that the information there could be much, much better. It's really quite celebratory. And I think if I received this, I'd find it quite hard um, not to go. Um, But I think my clinical and journalistic training compels me to remain neutral on this question. Um, And I would certainly be interested to hear from other listeners in the US uh, who are perhaps facing this or anybody else who's had to make that decision. We're going to go from the reasonably common condition of breast cancer to the markedly um, more rare conditions and to orphan drugs now and to a pair of papers. Jo, I'm going to come to you first because you've got a research paper and then Juan, you've got a commentary expanding on some of these issues. Um, Tell us a bit about what's come out. Yeah, it's actually interesting that so these two papers uh, came out uh, just this week, and it, which is uh, kind of ironic in its timing because we've actually just hit the 40th anniversary of the U.S. Uh, Orphan Drug Act, which was passed in 1983. Uh, and essentially, the act enabled companies developing therapies for clinical indications affecting fewer than 200,000 people in the U.S., to offer um, different incentives, uh, essentially, to help bring these drugs to market. It was a partial tax credit for clinical trial expenditures, waived user fees, because in the United States, when you put in an application for a new drug, you have to pay a user fee that's associated with it, along with um, eligibility for seven years of market exclusivity. Um, And the team uh, that did this study, um, where uh, based mostly in Germany, wanted to know essentially um, you know, what kind of evidence was supporting uh, these orphan drug approvals and um, you know, is the program kind of working as it's intended. And uh, you can see I actually wrote a commentary on this article, so you can read that as well. But you know, the, So you have very well-developed thoughts, Joe, which I'm sure you'll share with us. Well, I think that the gist is that um, they looked at all approvals uh, for specifically for cancer indications. So it was 170 drugs for 455 cancer indications that were approved between 2000 and 2022. And uh, what they found is that a third of them uh, were for cancer indications that were not designated as orphans, and the other two-thirds were. And that was the kind of first point where they like raised their hands up high and were like, what is going on here? Two-thirds of all cancer drug indications are for an orphan designation? That seems quite high. And then they look into it in much more detail. They categorize the indications by prevalence and find that only um, 25, so very few, were kind of what they called ultra rare. 200 or so were rare, but they actually identified 60 of them, 64 to be precise, that were approved for an orphan designation even though they were for a common cancer. And it's because of the use well, it's because of the way we've sort of narrowed therapeutic indexes using genetics to, to identify kind of like sort of subsamples of subsamples of these different cancers. And they question, you know, does, it, does this mean, is the orphan de- designation actually being incentivizing the right types of drugs to be developed? They look at the evidence that supports FDA approval and finds that these orphan designated cancer indications were approved on the basis of very small, often non-randomized, often unblinded trials that use surrogate markers at endpoints. And so they're like, 
you know, what can we really know about these approvals? Are we sure that the drugs are working effectively? But one thing that they're very sure of is the cost. And in the United States, they find that, you know, the, the therapies commonly exceeded $30,000 a year in annual costs, which has massive implications for patients who often bear a fair bit of cost sharing for these often infused uh, drugs. And they just essentially wonder, you know, is this, is this program working? If we're just getting a lot of expensive drugs on the basis of uncertain evidence, and we're putting it in front of patients and saying, particularly for cancer, now you decide whether you're going to take the product or not, right, and, and incur all of those great costs, um, it's, it's very, very challenging. Um, so maybe this program hasn't necessarily run entirely to the spirit that it was created. Well, cost has never been a part of the orphan drug designation, but they're, I think, rightly bringing it up because in the United States, you know, medical reasons are the most common reasons for bankruptcy. And among the medical reasons, cancer treatment is the most common reason, right? Because, you know, who who wants to deny their loved one, you know, oncology care? Um but the uncertain evidence, I think, is what plays directly into the analysis article that Juan brought to the table. And do they talk about um, patient, the patient voice in this, what, what patients with rare conditions prioritize or want? Because that's presumably, that whole landscape is so different to when the scheme was um, created. Well, you could argue that the, this, the, the act has been eminently successful in bringing new orphan designations to market. I mean, I think if I remember, there were fewer than 10 or so orphan designated products or products for rare diseases before the in the year before the act. Um, and there were hundreds, uh, you know, in the sort of more recent years. So there are many, many more orphan designation indications coming to market. And I think, at least in the United States, the patient advocacy community representing kind of rare diseases is, you know, we need products approved. And that's been a challenge, I think, across the board, not just for orphan-designated products, but the the challenge of, you know, how much evidence do we need to bring the product to market? Uh, we've talked about this in recent episodes for the Alzheimer's disease drugs, like how certain do we need to be that the product's going to work, you know, before we approve it and then sort of expect people to pay for it. Juan, how are these arguments developed in in your uh, analysis uh, paper? Well, the the, the paper focuses on the the European regulation, the EMA regulation on orphan drugs, and it sort of touches on a couple of, of same points that uh, Joe mentioned in the U.S. Basically, that the um, there obviously there's there's huge incentives in a um, trying to get a designation that is based on prevalence. Um, and well, I said to Joe, I sort of think, is this whole precision medicine creating orphan conditions? Because the precision is sort of narrowing diseases into smaller, lower prevalence um, conditions. So if you narrow it n- n- enough, you will always get the lower prevalence threshold. In the EU, is five per 10,000 people. So a condition must be rare. That's a five or ten thousand people. So, if you narrow the definition enough, you will be able to get this designation. And um, the, what the authors argue, and I think it's very interesting, is the definition of a, um, what is the standard um, therapy for that drug. Because an orphan drug will be approved 
if it's superior to the standard therapy. But for such a rare condition, this standard therapy is rarely defined. And if you have a, a drug that is approved for this condition, sometimes it would be included, but sometimes it would not be included in the standard therapy. So if you have a new drug, would that new drug need to be compared to the drug that has just been approved? Or would it be to a standard of care that doesn't include this drug? Because the, the, the low prevalence, the, what is the standard, is, is, is highly variable. And this regulatory aspect of approval has um, direct implications for um, what happens in each country. Because each country, based on the orphan drug approval, provides... Yeah, exactly. Each of the European countries have their own way of processing whether they're going to pay for that drug with health technology assessment. So there's also an accelerated pathway uh, and privilege for these drugs to be uh, funded. So um, there's the system problem of, of, of how we define the condition, the, the, lab, the indication of what is superior drug, and what are the right pathways in order to to, to um, at the same time get the right medication to the people but not get approval for these ones that have like little to no effect. They said that 54% of the drugs that they assess uh, as approved for orphan conditions in Europe had little to no effect. That's a lot, or more than half. That's an astounding number. It's outstanding indeed, yes. They, they have... Um, they run an analysis. I mean, this is an analysis that focuses on other research, right? So it's not there. Isn't it's not the primary research presented here? But um, but based on uh, yes, it all has to do with this definition of what you define as standard of care, and that in that definition is sort of changed how you assess effectiveness, and your product may look better um, if it, depending on how you define the comparison. Yeah, they essentially find find so few have demonstrated superior efficacy to that standard of care. And that ties right back to the point I was making, that the, the trials are weak in their design, right? They're short, they're small, they're not using clinical outcomes as endpoints, and, and this also addresses the comparator issue. And this is what I think is very challenging, and I think is going to befall all the sort of big governments making decisions, which is, What's sufficient to demonstrate safety and effectiveness for market authorization versus what's the level of evidence that's needed to pay to you know to to pay for it right and uh, increasingly these are diverging and becoming more and more complicated for patients and clinicians and caregivers to navigate and becoming very you know it comes into sharp focus doesn't it when you've got healthcare systems like the UK and others around the world in crisis really thinking about what can we afford to do and what can we afford to get to deliver if you've got low low value interventions combined with the the increasing you know power and uh, right, rightly empowerment of patients in the public to have a voice and a greater say in what they want their money spent on um, and I think these are important messages to have conveyed. Well, that is all for this episode of Talk Evidence. We'll be back in a month with more from the world of evidence and EBM. If there's anything you'd like us to look into, then let us know. Um, if you're happy just to let us talk, then um, you should probably reflect on that in a review on your podcast app. And I'm sure you know how to do that by now. 
So I guess, sadly, all that remains to be said on this episode is a huge goodbye to Joe. Uh, We're going to miss you. I'm going to miss your wisdom, and I'm sure our listeners will too. It's great to see you guys. I'm going to miss doing this. Are you having an online leaving party? No, I'm not having a leaving party. What? No one's offering a leaving party, and that's fine. There's no reason for that. Elizabeth and find out. Don't be silly. That's ridiculous. (laughs) We're going to stay in touch. Yeah, good luck. No, your thanks. new role I look forward to seeing Jam and Podcast being enlivened <laughs> and, and, and I'll see what I can do a. Duncan <laughs> suggesting that we have to listen to Joe's new podcast and up our game substantially <laughs> alright a little competition <laughs> exactly alright bye guys bye, bye 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 take care out there <laughs>